0: Welcome to The Puck, Venture Capital and Beyond, a show that explores the evolving landscape of the venture capital world. We'll have candid conversations with today's VCs and entrepreneurs who are shaping those changes. I'm Jim Beer, Managing Partner at Bear, Negrin & Trough and President of CMEG Advisors. This podcast brings change makers to the table to discover the inner workings behind the decision making strategies and ultimately to how they got to where they are today.
1: We're choosing to invest in consumer products that are better for you because we have this belief that if we're going to be making investments, we can tie that into this discernible social impact.
2: That is the goal. It's easier for the masses to adopt a few upgrades, your daily upgrade, than to upgrade everything.
0: On this episode of The Puck, I have a chance to sit down with Philip and Paulina Chibatera of Cambridge SPG. We talk about the newest innovations in the food and beverage industry and the cutting-edge technology changing the future of the Better For You investment space. You guys both have great backgrounds, and as a female-male team in doing what you're doing, I'd love to understand a little bit about what your background is and then also kind of what brought the two of you together as a team so that we can kind of understand how you work together.
2: Right, so Philip and I are brother and sister. So I guess we didn't really have a choice. Our parents at
1: birth kind of brought us (laughs) together. So we came from Russia in 1993. I was eight. Polina was almost 10. And we didn't have any friends. We didn't speak English. So we became best friends because we were the only we could communicate. We couldn't communicate with anybody else. And then after college, and we both went on to separate things. But ultimately, we wanted to start a business. An investment company, we joined forces and that was the distressed real estate acquisition effort.
2: Yeah, so in late 2009, early 2010, we saw a lot of banks having these distressed foreclosed properties going up for ten, fifteen cents on the dollar. And we started with a small property and then later on it got bigger and bigger. And in a five year period of time, we got about 350 million in equity, unleveraged. That was 44 different projects. And since then we've divested out of 41 of them. We have three left. But in 2014 is really when we started to see the opportunity in real estate die down and we started looking elsewhere to yes. other businesses, to other sectors for opportunities, and we stumbled upon consumer.
0: Which is interesting because, again, I have worked with various real estate turnaround funds and family offices that did kind of what you're doing, and then they were kind of waiting for the next cycle, but they really stayed focused on that, and then they realized there wasn't a place to deploy their money because there was so good money chasing these very expensive deals. Yes. So it's interesting in terms of you fit right into this notion of the puck, and whereas the venture capital world going, but where the world in general is going. So you got out of real estate at the right time, and you moved into this consumer stuff. So tell us a little bit about what was it that attracted you from real estate to the food industry? How did you settle on that?
1: Well, so we looked at various different sectors, like as real estate prices were recovering, there was no more distress. We looked at health and beauty businesses, retail businesses, a lot of food and beverage. I think qualitatively, for years, we knew that there's this massive generational shift in spending occurring. that. Millennials are shopping very differently than their parents, they want organic, they want better for you brands, and just started looking into it. And for two years, we looked at so many deals, and ones that looked interesting, we would dive in, we would do an analysis, but it never really hit home. And then ultimately, we got pitched a deal here in Santa Monica, actually, called Foodsters. There were less than a million in sales, but they were doing something really amazing in the better for you kind of baking category. And Sarah Michelle Geller was a co-founder. So we really wanted to meet Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So we went to go look at the deal, <laughs> but we fell in love with the team. We fell in love with what they were doing. We ended up leading their series A and that was our first deal. And then since then, we did Once Upon a Farm. We helped bring Jennifer Garner into that deal as a co-founder, a major investor. That company took off. And since then, we've invested in over two dozen companies.
0: So that's interesting. I just had lunch with someone yesterday who was talking about the number of companies that do Series A in Southern California, and it was a pretty limited group. In fact, from their perspective, it was seven, and they said there's exceptions to that, but it really was – Quote seven, and you weren't on that list. So what's interesting to me is that you guys are doing Series A rounds, people should know you're doing Series A rounds, and you started in our backyard in Santa Monica. So tell us a little more about, in terms of your investment criteria and the size deals you're looking for and the checks that you'll write, how does that figure into our ecosystem?
2: So we do do Series A, but we try to do them one at a time because earlier on in the growth stage of the business, they need a lot more time hands-on and so on the fun side about 85 percent of our deals are 20 million plus in revenue actually and those are like series B series B series C and then about 15 percent of it is focused on series A but we do them one at a time because there's so much of our time dedicated
0: and do you have an actual fund where you have limited partners that, yes. that you we have that a dedicated have, fund so we, we have, raise
1: money so all of our real estate deals we raise money for and all of our consumer deals we raise money
0: for. so is there a specific fund like in other words is this cambridge two cambridge three cambridge one is there and is there a specific amount of capital that you have to deploy that people should know about so
1: between dedicated fund vehicles we have 50 million to deploy but then we also do spvs on deal by deal because we have limited partners that like fund structures and we have limited partners that hate fund structures and only want to do deal by deal. So we yeah, do Yeah, they
2: like to cherry pick the right. deals.
1: absolutely. Because yeah. we have some corporate investors who may have an interest in produce, but they have no interest in tampons or sunglasses or whatever.
0: So do you then, it sounds like going from A all the way up, do you typically take a board seat with these companies? Yes. Yes. So
1: you're active investors. When we're a lead investor, yes. If we are putting
0: uh,
2: substantial
0: amount of money, of course, yes. Yeah. Right. And are you do you prefer to lead? Is that in terms of your deals, do you half of your deals? Do you lead half of your deals? I
1: would say about half. Yeah. I would say half we lead, the other half we follow on
0: with others. And so when you're in terms of your network of co investors and other stuff, are there particular VCs like do you work with the ones up north more? Do you work with ones in Orange County? Silicon Beach I mean we have friends in all over the country we're in a lot I
1: mean we're in a lot of deals with Harbinger ventures with Beachwood we're in a deal with VMG which is up north pretty big fund TSG yeah TSG 9 billion AUM so we're in purveyor together I mean we have co-investors on all of our deals
0: so when you talk about food and we talk about Southern California are there things unique to our ecosystem that have anything to do with why food and why Southern California
1: I think there's pockets around the country. And Southern California is one of the main places for food innovation. But Austin, Texas is Denver, huge. Yeah, Denver, huge. Colorado, New very York. big pocket. Yeah. So I think anywhere where you have dense metropolitan areas with a high concentration of educated millennials surrounded by affluent neighborhoods, right, where there's capital to fund these ventures i think that just fuels innovation right and here in la there's a lot of wealth a lot of angel investors right the angel investors invest in all these early stage concepts that otherwise may or may not have gotten off the ground and sometimes they do get off the ground and take off and become a dollar shave club or you know an honest company
0: So if I want to get a deal approved, do I have to pitch to both Paulina and you, Philip? I mean, how does that work in terms of getting approved? So we do
2: see deals separately, but if it gets past a certain point where it seems very compelling, of course, then Philip and I will look at it together and probably meet with the founders together.
1: Yeah, like a few weeks ago, we actually flew out to Scottsdale together Mm -hmm. to look at this deal. It's in the better for you dental care space. And this company is just like... Incredible. 82% margins, over 30 million revenue in second year. So we both went and the guy who introduced the deal to us is like, if you guys are both here, we know that you're serious about the deal, It's true, (laughs) which is true. Yeah.
0: So jumping around a little in terms of the dynamic between the two of you, brother, sister, are there birth order issues or anything that in terms of who plays one hat or otherwise? I'm the father of a boy and girl twin, by the way, and so in terms of the dynamics of siblings, and are you the two? Or are there other brothers and sisters too? We have a
1: younger brother as well.
0: And is he involved in the business at all? Not in this business. Own, yeah, he has
1: his own business. He's younger. He got married first. He has his third kid on the way. So yeah, we have a great family ratio. But he does his business. We have our business.
2: Yeah, Philip and I are very much the same person, except he's the guy and I'm the girl. Gotcha. like we're very synergistic
0: so do you are you different or are you very complementary sim- complementary so you respect the differences but our goal is the same and how would you articulate what that goal is so our goal is to from the investment
1: standpoint right we have limited partners we raise capital mm-hmm. and the goal and that is to make money for the general partnership and for the limited partners and to grow transaction size and to grow transaction volume But we can do that model right anywhere we can invest in energy we can invest in tech we can invest in a variety of different things right we're choosing to invest in consumer products that are better for you because we have this belief that if we're going to be making investments as an investment company and if we can tie that into this discernible social impact such as making better for you products more accessible not just to the very affluent but to all people then that's where we're going to focus on energy and in real estate we actually did the same thing. So we invested in a lot of what now would be called opportunity zones before they were called opportunity zones. And then we would donate to, for example, schools in that neighborhood and do community events.
0: You raise an interesting issue from a social consciousness perspective. I was listening to something on the Daily today about the trickle-down nature of the tax cut, and they did a really detailed analysis about Fred Smith and FedEx. And what they basically said is that they lobbied a lot for this trillion-dollar tax cut, but then in the year post the tax cut, FedEx has not spend any money in capital infrastructure, but they did pay it out in the forms of shareholder distributions. And there's a whole discussion about whether or not that's going to ultimately lead to capital investment and everything else. But in the organic food space and in these better for you food categories, with 30% of the economy now, this upper middle class, these people that are buying these products, I understand that they're going to Alfred's and buying a $4 smoothie or a cup of coffee and otherwise. But there is the 70% of the rest of the country that isn't partaking of that. Are the foods and the technologies that you're developing, will they eventually trickle down and benefit those other 70%?
2: That is the goal. And then some of the companies, like the ones that we try to focus on, are the ones that are easily to adapt to an everyday lifestyle, like a better for you bread or cup of coffee. It's easier for the masses to adopt a few upgrades, your daily upgrade, than to upgrade everything And especially the more expensive items in life, like cars or residences or vacations and all that.
0: So when you talk about daily upgrades like coffee and bread, can you give us an example of some of the things that your companies are doing that are either out there currently or that we should be looking for?
1: I mean, so Once Upon a Farm is a great example because prior to Once Upon a Farm, the fresh baby food category didn't exist. You had about 60% of moms making the food at home for their babies and the rest buying shelf-stable products from Gerber, from Plum Organics, from Happy Baby, a variety of these different brands. That
2: are older than the baby.
1: Right, yeah these shelf-stable products were older usually than the child that was eating them.
2: Right, that's funny.
1: And so Once Upon a Farm came out with fresh baby food using HPP which is high-pressure pasteurization technology which gives fresh food shelf life of 120 days. So now this technology enabled this product and today it's the number one selling baby food at Whole Foods. It's now 40% of the whole category, just two years in. But the interesting thing that Once Upon a Farm has done, they realized, well, we sell really well in Whole Foods, we sell really well in Sprouts, these affluent stores, right? But they are also in Walmart, they're also in Kroger, they're also in Target. And they went state by state and have been getting WIC certification for their product, which now enables lower income mothers and single mothers, right, who are on government assistance to use WIC to purchase Once Upon a Farm. So now it's no longer just affluent moms in Santa Monica that have access to this better for you product that makes their kids smarter, healthier, right? Gives them that nutrition, no high fructose corn syrup or additives. Now it's accessible to all. I mean, that's, I think a really good example of how brand can focus on making profit, right? Because if it's not going to make a profit, then it's not going to ultimately succeed. It'll fizzle out, but also in that process, make it accessible for everybody, which has that positive social impact.
0: So when we're talking about how you're viewed in the community and how you want the investor base to look at you and just in general, are there reputational things out there in terms of how you want to be viewed that people should know about?
1: Yeah. So since like 2010, we've been general partners of about 70 deals and limited partners as investors in over 30 and reputationally. So in the standpoint from our Limited partners, the kind of reputation we have is that we'll go above and beyond to make sure that there's the best possible outcome in a deal. Because, right, in all of those deals, the one thing that they all have in common is that something goes wrong. It always does. But it's not that it always goes wrong and it's not recoverable, right? There's issues that need to be resolved, right? Like one of our properties we bought for 1.8 million and we sold it for 8.5 million. Right. But nobody knows that in the four years from that happened, we had. Four lawsuits. We had liens against the property from contractors that did a poor job. Right. We had a title company that didn't record something that was supposed to be on title. I mean, there was a lot of issues, right? But we went from 1.8 to 8.5 in four years, non-leveraged. There's always things that come up, but it's really putting that effort in and time in to make sure that it goes from A to B. And then from the sense of the portfolio companies that we're invested in, but also ones that we're targeting and wanting to invest in. The kind of reputation we have is that it's almost the mirror of what our limited partners see. We understand that these companies, the trajectory isn't always gonna be like this, right? It's gonna be like this. And we can wait out the delays. We know that it's not gonna be a straight linear lineup. It's when those problems occur, that's when we really excel because we help those brands figure things out we don't go into panic mode and
0: and do you have consultants that you bring in is it the two of you that are kind of rolling up your sleeves and helping them in a typical situation when there's a challenge with these companies how do they typically get it I mean we have great Paulina does it all
2: <laughs> thanks <laughs> no. uh, we do have great relationships we have advisors and we have analysts and Philip and I are very much hands-on but we have a lot of strategic relationships with other VCs. I mean, we have a wide network to reach out and tap into the resources we need. It's a team effort. For whatever reason it could be.
0: So what I hear you saying with the sophisticated team you have in place, I'm wondering though, what you and your group anticipate for the future. Part of our mission is again, the puck, where is venture capital going? And we are living in a unique time right now where People are talking about the WeWork situation, and again, is is that a sea change in that it's not in and of itself representative of everybody else, and it's such a large situation, but it's calling into question everybody's assumptions, and so people are looking under the hood and saying, okay, that which we most fervently desire, we most easily believe, but is it time now to reassess where we are? With an election coming up, and we know From a liquidity perspective nothing's going to happen before the election the government's going to keep the foot on the pedal as much as possible but recognizing that there is going to be an after election where do you see us going so i
1: think the reason that we work and right uber and not just these big high profile companies that have this national attention but also smaller companies and more local companies that have experienced growing top line at all costs. And the reason that that happened is because strategic acquirers or private equity firms or public investors and retail investors right, rewarded top line growth and were not focusing on the burn rate. And sometimes the unit economics behind the companies were sound and so they spent a ton of money, gained market share, But ultimately, because they had strong margins, right, the unit economics of the actual product, service, whatever made sense, they reached profitability. But oftentimes, that wasn't the focus. So it was grow top line, and you'll figure out the unit economics later. Once you have this huge control of the market share and you're the monopoly, you'll be able to figure out how to actually make it profitable. And because investors rewarded this, a lot of companies, that's what they did, because their rate of growth and their top line was what was gonna drive the next valuation. And so, of course, trees don't grow to the sky, and it got to a point where a $47 billion valuation for WeWork, right, may have been the thing that tipped the hat, but it was a combination of a lot of things. And we're seeing this, how companies as small as a million dollars in sales are looking at how they're going to build their business. So it's impacting the entire industry, I'm sure in tech, in consumer in other areas of private equity. I mean, it's a big topic in 2019 because no longer is it about just growing top line at all costs, right? It's making sure that your unit economics are sound and then scaling from there.
0: You know, as you're talking, I'm thinking about Amazon and for how long Amazon went without turning a profit and they were rewarded for it. You look at what's going on with Netflix and Amazon and Disney and Apple now, and this whole race to buy content and spend as much as you can because you've got a global marketplace now of seven billion people. I was looking at statistics for Stranger Things, I think, and the number of views. I mean, there were X million in America, but it's all over the world now. So you've got all these phenomenons going on at a time when there was some sense to, you know, if you keep throwing money at it, you become Jeff Bezos. You keep throwing money at it, you're gonna become Netflix. But it also, it's interesting to me, And somebody smarter than me in history will rewrite this quantitative easing and this notion of printing 20 trillion dollars that just coincidentally coincided with the real estate collapse that you're talking about and what we've lived through for 10 years put 20 trillion dollars worldwide into circulation that didn't exist and we can keep doing that but if we get back to real economic monetary policy at some point there has to be a day of reckoning and are you seeing that day of reckoning
1: yes it's definitely here I mean, the kind of updates that we're getting from our portfolio companies are we are planning to grow slower next year and use less outside cash and focus on margin improvement. We're seeing that across the board. And I think that investors today are becoming afraid of companies that plan to raise tens of millions of hundreds of millions of dollars before they ever reach revenue
0: or profitability. But is the code for what you're saying that investors are going to let some of these companies die or they're going to have to merge or restructure because you know it's one thing to say that's what we're focused on but you can focus on that for 10 years if people keep investing in that new focus for a while you could go on for a long time and keep getting money is there gonna be a group of companies that get caught by these new rules that are going to either have to merge with some of your portfolio companies or transition out of their space.
1: I think there's three things to that. So I think some companies, even ones that don't have sound unit economics, are going to get lucky and they're going to become the Amazons. It happens. Sure. But most that don't have their unit economics figured out are going to fizzle out. The ones that have strong margins, the business actually makes sense, but maybe they spent more. To gain market share right to take control of that sector they scale back right they have a higher chance of success because the fundamentals of the business make sense and i think the third is consolidation like you said because for every company with crappy margins and unit economics and it may be a crappy company in the way it is but there's an acquirer potentially that can tuck it into their infrastructure and improve the unit economics and I think a lot of the strategic investors, at least in our space and consumer products, they were paying these obscene multiples, eight times top line sales, sometimes 10 times for a company that was growing 100% year over year and had 15, 16% margins. Like It just didn't make any financial sense, but they were justifying it as, well, we're going to acquire it for this. In our infrastructure, we can improve the margins from 17 to 45 And we can increase ACV and get it from, you know, these 5,000 stores that it's in to 30,000 stores in one year. And so for them, the deal made sense. Whereas a private equity firm without those capabilities on the manufacturing
0: and distribution side would never do a deal like that. So Paulina, if you are meeting with any entrepreneur that is coming to you and saying, look, we want to get financing. And I listened to your interview and you were talking about how there's this sea change that's occurring. What would you tell them?
2: I would tell them to focus on the enterprise value creation with the amount of money that was raised in their seed round, for example. Like I would want to see what they were able to accomplish with the seed investors' money before coming to me. Because I want to have enough data to extrapolate their success before we put in money. It will give me a better projection of the outcome if we came in for Series A or B.
0: And in terms of investing in women-owned companies, women-led companies, is there anything unique in terms of the criteria that you look at with companies where that gives you a competitive advantage is because you're looking for women? How does so that figure what you're doing? in So it's interesting in
2: consumer food and beverage specifically versus other consumers because, you know, there's 50-50 men and women in consumers, but in the food and beverage, there's a lot of women that are shopping even in the men households. Last time I looked at the numbers, it's like 85% is the female buyer in food. So I think to have that perspective of what women want or need or desire to see on the shelves.
0: So are you seeing in terms of, and whether or not this is scientific or just in general, are there more women CEOs of food and consumer food products than in other industries because of that, unique, you know, because of the woman's perspective?
2: No, but we are seeing more and more of them emerging, but I would say 50-50.
1: Yeah, but I think women are just better consumers. (laughs) They're better consumers for several reasons, but the main reason is they're very vocal about their purchases, right? When women find a new product that they love, whether it's cosmetics or personal care or food or beverage, right, they're telling their friends all their girlfriends, they're telling the men in their lives, And they're sharing about it like men don't really do that right we're never calling up our buddies and saying I just the best deodorant bro like we gotta (laughs) use this one it's so good I'm gonna post it on social media women are just better consumers
0: for that reason when you're helping your companies or you're deciding which companies to invest in reading between the lines in terms of what you just said are you also looking for companies that from a marketing perspective there's a huge social media opportunity in terms of how those products are marketed yeah.
2: What is the joke that you always say? In this industry, you can't look at the industry as, or at the products as a 40-year-old man. You have to yeah. look at it as a woman between the ages of 18 and 30 yeah. or something, or
0: 34.
1: To determine if it's going to be cool, if it's going to be hip, like if it's going to take off.
0: Right. And then if it's going to be hip and it's going to take off and it starts in the social media, does what that... Has to last also. But does that also then translate to the cool value Then people go to Walmart and they will buy it at Walmart because they've heard about it in the social media stuff? So for those people in the bubble who are going to their Whole Foods and their Trader Joe's or otherwise, it's one thing for them to hear about it because women are talking about it at the coffee shop or on Facebook or otherwise. But in terms of the country in general, this whole social media and driving people to the retailers, the big box retailers like the Costco's and the Walmart, do you you see a big tie-in with that?
1: I think it's different for every company right there's customers for the natural channel for convenience a good example of this company that we went to see in scottsdale so they have major major celebrities that promote the product mayweather and kardashians and just you name it right and so the way that their map looks of the country is the people that are promoting it are the influencers that live in california miami new york and then the people that are buying it are people that are actually ages 40 and higher up to 60 that live. In all the other parts of the country
2: but they follow those people
1: yeah. interesting. so
2: but if it was a DTC business that's right. well, really
1: yeah, of- DTC that's now launching into retail so it'll be omnichannel
0: we've talked about that the economy is shifting it's gonna get a little tougher out there buttoning down the hatchet so to speak because we're gonna have some rough seas but in terms of exciting new technology that not everybody may be aware of are there other things like that that are gonna change the way we buy products that are gonna be healthier for us, but also things we may not know about yet? Definitely,
1: so processes like HPP is definitely one of them. But I think there's a big focus right now in sweetener systems. So that's a big, big topic from a technology or innovation standpoint.
2: Yeah, and being able to derive from fruit versus all of these artificial sweeteners. Anything that disturbs the gut is like well
1: sugar is the enemy right sugar reduction is a huge social phenomenon that's occurring but the alternatives like sugar alcohols they cause the digestive distress they're not optimal some have strange aftertastes so there's actually quite a bit of innovation coming out in sweetener systems and then using those sweetener systems in products so for example that sweetener system may work great in a baked good, but won't work well in a beverage or may work well in something else, right? Like So optimizing the format, that's big. I think blockchain in produce and other
0: products is huge. It's starting to emerge. So we've done episodes on the blockchain and cryptocurrencies. And one of the things that our listeners ask all the time and one of the things that I ask all the time is, what are some practical applications of blockchain? In the real world, how is it gonna be brought down and affect our lives?
1: Well, so I by no means will pretend that I'm like an expert in blockchain food, but using blockchain as a way to document where the product was grown, who collected it, where it traveled to on the truck, how it got to the warehouse, and monitoring all those steps along the way. Like I know Walmart does this with everything that they source, right? So
2: traceability.
1: And ultimately, like the consumers are looking for that, I would say, transparency in the supply chain. Because for them, it's important, not just the certification of the product, right, whether it's organic or not, but also how it was harvested and sourced. There was a thing called acai, right? Everybody kind of remembers the acai craze.
0: Was it the Brazilian fruit, right? Yes. Yeah. yes.
1: Powerful antioxidants, yep. was all over the place. And acai sales went wow. sky high. But then it was discovered that all of this acai was being gathered in South America by modern day slave labor, and all of a sudden, Acai sales went down because, of course, nobody wants this antioxidant if the cost of it was human slave labor, right? So I think, I mean, transparency in the supply chain is very important and blockchain is one of the things that enables that for the retailers to give that transparency to consumers. But then also, how cool would it be to just go into a grocery store and use some Bitcoin to buy a carrot?
0: Right. It's fascinating. We've been involved in a lot of organic food companies and understanding the different ratings from all over the world. and having chia seeds shipped to Europe and sold in Europe versus sold here and the expiration dates and the sample rooms for these things. It's very complicated and you know people read organic but what the heck and there's so many layers to that and I think you're right that blockchain one of the things it's very good at is authentication. I think more and more you're going to see that people are going to want to know what's in their water so to speak. Have you? looked at any water deals? We have a water deal. Okay. Well, so you want to tell us about your water deal?
2: H-Factor. So it's hydrogen water and it really works. The hydrogen enters your body and attaches to the free radical oxygen and binds together and flushes out.
0: Impurities and stuff. Interesting. The reason I'm asking is just because with so much focus on recycling, there's been studies done in terms of plastic bottle recycling versus can recycling, and does it make sense to package things because of that in aluminum cans or things that are recycled at a higher level? There's also this whole- You still
2: have to recycle though. Right. And that really is all up to the consumer to do but for example each factor the pouches have a lower carbon footprint than what, like a, a glass bottle volume. or
0: so is there a unique packaging to that
2: it's a pouch so once it's empty it's very flat
0: oh interesting so it's yeah. better more... for you and they're reci- and then are they recycled yeah. yes that's fascinating because again in the studies that i've seen on cans versus bottles bottles do not lay down flat easily. And so they're less recyclable. I mean, they're just not recycled nearly as often because it's a pain. Whereas Unless can't... you
2: incentivize them with bringing back to the store, these glass bottles, and we'll give you some money towards the next purchase, which I know some milks do that, for example, in the glass Interesting. bottles. Interesting. But you have to incentivize the customer. Otherwise, why would they do it?
1: I think the single-use plastics is another big issue yeah. today. consumer products
2: we're constantly looking for new package alternatives for our brands
0: are you doing anything in the pet space we also
2: have a pet deal
0: because it seems to me that in this new environment people care more and more about their pets and there's natural this and there's that but nobody really that i'm aware of has really taken ownership of that space and really said start to finish here's our product and here's why you should use this raw dehydrated all natural low and ash product. So what are you guys doing in the foods? Do you have a dog? I have a cat, okay. And I have a colleague who runs an all-natural pet store and is pushing raw food. So I'm curious what you're seeing in that space. People are
2: treating their animals as if they were part of the family nowadays, right? So as they're making the different changes in their diets, it's all starting to trickle down to the animals. And I mean just the other day somebody pitched us pet water special water for a pet so we're starting to see it really penetrate not just with the food but the water and other supplies but in our pet food deal we have raw
1: well the issue in pet food is that over 90% of pet food that's sold in this country is just garbage it is trash it's worse
2: than McDonald's it is so
1: bad it is like feeding your pets trash and if you love your pets like which we right Americans love their pets why would you want to feed them this stuff it causes chronic illness and pain for them and inflammation and so because of this awareness is growing, the pet food industry is having the same shift as the human food yeah, industry. And aha moment. Yeah, the raw, organic, biologically appropriate is a big term. So dogs, cats, in the wild, they'll never eat grains. They're not going to eat soybeans. They're not going to eat corn. Right? And all these fillers that are in these conventional pet foods, they're supposed to eat meat. So having an appropriate, biologically appropriate diet for pets is also very important. The pet food company we're invested in is True Pet, which was recently acquired by Better Choice Company, which is a company that acquires better-for-you pet food brands.
0: Yeah, and, and again, to show that none of this is simple, I was also told that, yes, pure meat is good, but in the wild, when they eat a mouse or an animal that eats certain types of vegetarians they will get some vegetable in their diet not corn but if you're trying to really mimic what they get in the wild there really should be some not filler but some
1: Yeah, and so i think sweet potato is used commonly yeah, where
2: or just some healthy fats but,
1: but not GMO soy right where like 80 percent of it is GMO soy and like there you go eat it right
0: keeps their cholesterol down <laughs> yeah, i think you guys in terms of again the puck and where it's going as you're saying, as people are interested in what they're putting into themselves, you do see people getting uninherited and their houses being left to their pets and the pets eating better than the children. So it's definitely a movement, and I'm interested to hear that that's part of your segment.
1: They say you're not a real private equity firm until you have a pet
0: food deal. So we had to do one. There you go. So, Paulina, we know there are companies outside the food and beverage space that you are investing in. I'd love to hear a little bit about those companies.
2: So we're investors in Cora, which is organic feminine care. I mean, obviously organic is a big deal because you're putting something in your body and there's been association with toxic shock syndrome. But also the interesting thing about that company is that they donate feminine care to girls in India.
1: And Africa. And
2: Africa, where these women kind of lose their prospects at 12, 13 because they don't have the right products to be able to have them go to school we really like their social mission but I think the thing that ties all of this together is that consumers are realizing they're gonna pay for it now or later in their health either they're gonna pay a little bit more of a premium for a healthier product now but save on all of the money that we've seen you know now like the baby boomer generation spending on medication because they were not conscious I think this is the thing that's fueling What is going on in the landscape?
1: And it's not just baby boomers. I mean, chronic illness is... Yeah, Affecting even gen X all
2: generations. 85% no. is diet. That's the fuel that you require every single day, three times a day at least. Of course right. that's yeah. going to play the Preventative.
1: largest. Preventative is so important in healthcare.
0: Have you gotten into this whole gluten-free movement stuff? Will you invest in companies that are doing a lot with gluten or are you focusing on giving people a gluten-free alternative? How does that figure into the kind of companies you're investing in? So like
1: in the case of Foodsters, which makes organic, better for you baked goods, they have uh, Core line, which uses identity preserved organic flour. So the highest quality, pure natural flour that you can buy. But they're also coming out with keto, gluten free, right? All these different alternatives that have lower sugar, for example, and having different lines that offer different consumers what they want. I mean, the issue that we've seen with gluten intolerances, lactose intolerance, food allergies, a lot of times it's not the actual food that's creating the allergy it's either the process or the pesticide that was used that's creating the allergy, right? So a lot of genetically modified ingredients, the reason they're genetically modified is so they can withstand pesticides because the weeds can't withstand the pesticides. But if you genetically modify that crop, it's not, not impacted by the pesticide, so the weeds die and the crop stays alive. But that pesticide residue is what's creating a lot of the food allergies. Lactose intolerance is created because of the way that the milk is pasteurized. So the lactose, which is the protein, stays, but the lactase, which is the enzyme that helps your body process that lactose, is destroyed by the pasteurization process. So that's why a lot of times people that are lactose intolerant, they can drink raw milk and they don't have the issue. It's not just a food, right? It's when man gets involved with food and overprocesses it and sprays it with too much stuff and does all these scientific
0: experiments to it, that's when it starts creating issues. I followed the whole GMO campaign, for instance. You know, Was it gonna be outlawed in California? Was it gonna be not? There was this whole initiative. And they kept constantly saying that there's no evidence that anything with GMO is dangerous. And that may well be 100% true. But this is the first time I've ever heard anybody in an articulate way explain that good news and bad news. When we make these crops stronger so that they can withstand pesticides, it only means that they have more pesticide residue. So it's not the GMO process that is dangerous, it's the fact that now you're eating foods that have more pesticides on it. But that's something people need to know about. Interesting. I always learn more and I love you. Great stuff. You guys were great, thank you very, very
2: much. Thank you for having us.
1: Yeah, thank
0: you for having us.